There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. <sighs> Annie and I broke up, and I, I still can't get my mind around that. You know, I, I keep sifting the pieces of the relationship through my mind and, and examining my life and trying to figure out where did the screw-up come, you know? And a year ago, we were in love. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Podcast Goes To, a weekly podcast where we discuss Oscar-nominated films that we randomly select. This week, we're discussing Annie Hall, movie from 1977. <laughs> Thank you for holding up the hand gestures, Matt. I'm Bob Klein. We have Matt DeGenero and a special guest, Keith brown how's it going everybody good happy to have you back keith thank you obviously the success of your episode was uh, enough to warrant a renewal for the second guest appearance well that's exciting we have uh some new listeners from all over the world thanks to keith somehow still trying to figure that one out but very welcoming hello to you all in pakistan we have four listeners in pakistan so I stopped shaving after the school year ended because I'm trying to go for that Letterman thing so I can get my own Netflix series. Oh, so you're just using this as a stepping stone. That's to it. Pretty soon I'm going to leave series. you all in the dust. It's a, it's a pretty good look. I, I'm not going to lie. I thought you were just going for new roles to get typecasted into in, in film school. <laughs> so I'm like tired bearded, of being... Bearded cop. <laughs> yeah instead of regular clean shaven cop we'll go with bearded cop or maybe you'll play i don't know a killer your students ever make horror films I'm sure they do sometimes sometimes so the last time you were on we talked about a star is born didn't and since then the trailer has has come out for us the new one with lady gaga have you seen it i saw it yeah it looks good <laughs> yeah it does actually look good it's different though it's country music themed right did yeah, it seems, and I haven't seen the Streisand version yet, but it seems like it's more on the line of, of that, right? I think so. It's definitely has nothing to do with Hollywood. It's all about, like, music, rise rise to stardom in the music industry. But it's not coming out until October, right? Or something like that? Yeah. It was supposed to be out for the summer, but they, they moved it up because of Oscar Oscar season. Now, right. here is, here is a, a guess at why that episode is so popular, because the trailer was released the same week that the episode was released. So people are Googling it and coming up with your podcast? <laughs> yes. So what movie is going to be coming out soon? You can name it this, that. Is, is the Annie Hall sequel about to come out? <laughs> Annie Hall 2. If that was yes. the case, we should switch what we're doing and not talk about old movies, but just do a podcast about current movies. See them when they come out. <laughs> We'd probably have a lot more fans. <laughs> Probably. Us and every single other podcast that talks about movies. Well, I guess we talked about a movie that hasn't come out yet, so we're the only thing out there. I don't know. Bold theories here, but uh, unfortunately we're not talking about a current movie. We're talking about 1977's Annie Hall, a movie that uh, Keith is very fond of. Uh, Keith, did you say that you recently saw this movie in, in the theaters? Did they do a re-release? Yeah, so they re-released it in 4K uh, over the summer. Probably because it was an anniversary of some type. Probably 30th anniversary, right? 2017. 
40th. 40th. That's what 40th. I tried. Oh my god. So yeah. my car is also from 1977. So my car is 40 years old. The Cutlass? Wow. The Cutlass. <laughs> the Cutlass Supreme. Did you happen um, to see a Cutlass in any hall? No, and I looked when I saw it in the movie theater. I was looking for the Cutlass. <laughs> but you got to remember, I mean, that car was really popular through a lot of the 70s version of that car, but they would have shot, when they shot that movie, my car wouldn't have been, right? Because they probably shot it in like 76, right? That's true, um, yeah. They think they started filming in um, May of 76. But, you know, the 70s, I, I traditionally, I don't like movies from the 70s. I find the people to be unattractive. Everybody, sm- they smoke in bed. Everybody's smoking in bed in this movie. Did you notice that? Like, <laughs> c- could that be any grosser? <laughs> that was the thing to do. That's why everybody had burned sheets, like sheets with like holes in them, because they all like got in bed with cigarettes. Isn't there an Italian song where someone sets the um, the bed on fire? Crazy Mary, Crazy Mary sets the bed on fire. No idea. What, what are talk- you talking about? Oh, the uh, that song that they play in the seventh inning stretch at the Met games. That you're talking Is that what they play? They need the sheets for the table. They use the same sheet, the linens for the table, and then she sets them on fire because she's smoking in bed. I'm lo- I'm googling Crazy Mary right now, but I'm afraid to play anything. It's right that song. Yeah. So I'm not crazy. It's not crazy, Matt. It's crazy, Mary. That sounds like every stereotypical Italian song you ever have heard. It is. It is it's the... it's been remade a hundred thousand times. That's crazy. <laughs> so you don't like '70s movies, but you like this movie. What is it about Annie Hall that that separates it from the rest of the pack? Well, uh, the first thing is, I think the first time I saw this, I was in a college filmmaking course that was all about Woody Allen and Mel Brooks, and we were studying comedy. Um, so that's the first time I sort of saw something like this and it really impressed me because I, I like the tone of it. I think the the way that it's really reflective and the way that, you know, he's thinking about this relationship that didn't even work out, but he talks about it with such fondness is really interesting to me. Yeah. Unique story structure just to, just to interject is, is that it, it, it kind of jumps around a lot in time and space and uh, there's a lot of fantasy elements as well, which is something I picked up on. Um, he talks to, he breaks the fourth wall. He talks to strangers on the street who are conveniently well-versed on the story of his life and they give him advice. And then there's some cartoon segment and, you know. And what about, type... the, what about when he, when he goes back to his uh, elementary school class and he, they're just, the kids are just standing up saying what they became. And one girl was just like, I'm into leather. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. I love that very much. And ultimately, it, what it boils down to is a simple romance between two people who meet in New York City. But he, he does tell it in a, in a unique way. So go on. So that's something that you like about it, the narrative structure. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, is that, you know, you come to, as you watch more of his movies, like the way music is used, which is a little bit different here, right? Because normally it's sort of those instrumental songs of the 40s, but um, the most of the music in this film is is Keaton singing. And I think that makes the final scene very poignant, especially because she's singing about old times and they're cutting back to, um, you know, things that we just saw, but you're sort of reliving the relationship just as he is in the process of him narrating this film. Right, because we've now we've watched the movie, so we've experienced it with him, and we can reflect sure. on the movie with him. Well, do you have a hard time believing that he, they are together? 
just by the way they look. That's interesting. Because I think the first time I watched it, I sort of was like, how are they a couple? (laughs) But they were. That bothers me in every Wooden Allen movie, because I find him to be such a disgusting individual. (laughs) It's like any character he ends up with is like, no, they can do better. I really believe that. (laughs) Well, I think, though, Bob, in later films, right, he's significantly older than the female lead. And so then I think it becomes like, well, that's weird. Like, why are they together? There's like a... I don't know, 20 or 30 year age difference. Uh, but here is, what, what do you think the age difference? I, they're probably close in age. Well, Diane Keaton is 72 and I think Woody Allen is 82. So there's a 10 oh, year okay. gap, which okay. isn't too bad, but he does okay. see, he does look significantly older. Well, it's funny because when I first started watching it now for this podcast, I was like, wow, he's so young, but Bec- only because not even comparing their ages, but I was thinking about him now and him then, and he looked much younger to me, looking at this now, you know? Yeah, That's true. I mean, he, it, it's, it's always him inserting himself into these movies, which I think is a big detractor from his his filmography, is that every single movie is Woody Allen in Annie Hall, Woody Allen in Shadows of Fog, Woody Allen in Sleeper. It's not a character that he's playing, it's him. And, you know, that gets repetitive after all these years. But So what were you saying, Bob, regarding his... Regarding the this film specifically, you, it didn't work for you with the with his looks. <laughs> I mean, I I really dislike this movie. I just found it really. It's just like he's the main character, and I don't like him at all. And I just don't care about what happens to him. And I, I found like nothing happened at all. I don't well, know. What don't it's you like really... about him specifically? You he sound just... like you sound like all the students I have in the online class right now about every movie we watch. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I sounded like this in film school too. Whenever, whenever the teachers had a film to watch, I I always got so <laughs> got so like disappointed, <laughs> so negative. It's like, how dare you show this to me? I to me, it's just like one of my big pet peeves is complaining, and I hate hearing people complain. It's well, literally literally all he does. So I want to jump, kind of goes sequentially a little so this movie opens up interestingly it opens up with him just one-on-one in the middle of the screen talking to the audience immediately establishing that there's going to be a lot of fourth wall breaks and stuff like that what did you guys think of that that opening well the first thing i thought of watching it this time and i don't remember if i thought of it when i saw it over the summer but i i think that that reminded me of when harry met sally which actually obviously came later right but i'm thinking i i thought to myself when i watched this time Oh, that's where they that's where they pulled this from, right? Because it's this it's the same sort of setup in a way, like Harry's talking about when he first met Sally going through that whole thing. So that was the first thing I thought about. It, it told me a little bit about the perspective that we were going to be getting for the rest of the movie. Like, okay, it's clearly what we're about to see is clearly a story told through the lens of this specific character and needs to be taken with a grain of salt, right? Like he's going to be the one who is explaining the relationship and therefore everything that we're seeing is through his eyes. And, you know, watching the movie with that in mind, you can see where maybe it it was, you know, certain instances were portrayed a specific way because that's how he remembered them versus how they actually occurred. Like all of the, uh, the fantastical segments and, you know, on the streets and all that, it's his warped interpretation of what the relationship was. Uh, to to achieve like an aesthetic versus uh, an accurate retelling of of the events. I with me when I 
I guess you do know the character because that's the same character in a lot of his movies. Um, and there's there there are a good chunk of movies of his that I actually do like. Uh, Sleeper in particular is one of my favorites, but it's just like I. I find it maybe I just have attention issues, and Keith can maybe <laughs> weigh in on that. As a, a when did you go to the bathroom during this movie? <laughs> uh, a lot. I I went a lot, but <laughs> I was just like, I don't really care about you yet. Like, why do I want to sit and listen to you talk at me for so long? Like, I want you to earn it. I don't know. So it's kind of like a Seinfeld open. Like it opens with it reminded like a me act. very much of that. Yeah, where he opens up with like the stand up comedy. With the, mm-hmm. the brick wall behind him. It did it did remind me a lot about that, yeah. Well, it's it's funny, Matt, hearing you talk about it made me think of something that I'd really never thought of before, even though I feel like it's very obvious, is that because this is a, a recollection of this relationship from his point of view, the relationship couldn't have could have been nothing like this. I mean, like Diane Absolutely. Keaton, we're, yeah. we're, we're talking about her being attractive. like. Yeah, we're not seeing this from this omniscient point of view as we usually see a story unfold. So, you know, the beginning and the ending could be true, that they got together and then they split apart, but everything in the middle could have been, you know, augmented in some way based on his recollection from his male perspective. Yeah, like, oh yeah, well that too. But like, even when they go back into his childhood, when they're talking about him in school, he was always, he was the smartest kid in school and everyone else is dumb and ugly. Like, (laughs) yeah. So let's talk about that school scene for that. That was an interesting scene uh, towards the beginning where he. He kisses that girl and then turns into himself <laughs> later on. And all. it was a really interesting scene. That was the scene where the kids all stand up and say what they become, their professions. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's like he takes us, he like walks into his own memory and interacts with it and has discussions with his old teacher, with his old students. And again, we're like establishing the character, but we're establishing it through his perspective his recollection of the events. But it's weird because that scene takes place in his childhood, which also Radio Days does as well. And I feel like there's a lot of similarity between the family here and the family there, probably because they're based on the same people. Mm-hmm. Did did they live underneath the roller coaster in Radio Days? I feel like, I honestly I feel did. like they did. Yeah. He didn't actually yeah. grow up in that house though, the the roller coaster no. house? No, 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 I know. Because I believe that, that that is a real... There was a house that was under the road. It was a real location, yeah. Yeah. And then it said, I just, I just looked it up again. It said that at some point Giuliani had it knocked down without any warning whatsoever. Sad. But he's I wonder, crazy. I wonder anyway. what was in yeah. there <laughs> that Rudy Giuliani was trying to hide. Yeah. <laughs> what documents were? Stormy Daniels was in there. <laughs> I read an article the other day that she's, uh, she's back in. Uh, porn is that true i guess because her name's so popular again <laughs> i think i read something that she's coming to providence <laughs> or is she coming in providence <laughs> i don't know i don't know as i said that i said i shouldn't have said that out loud <laughs> you you love to jump on those matt <laughs> oh yeah they they found the house while they were scouting and it's interesting to me i know we're trying to go sequentially but like d- discussing the the film as a whole it was interesting for me to read how much of this movie was sort of sculpted in the middle of production. Like they didn't have the ending completely done and a lot of stuff got cut and changed. And even the title of the movie was changed. Um, the, the, the cocaine scene where he sneezes in the cocaine is famously um, accidental. He actually did sneeze and they kept it. Um, so it's interesting that, 
that the, the film was so fluid and the script was so, so constantly changing. Do you think that it, it came together as a cohesive unit in the end, or do you still think it was a little bit of a mess considering how much they flip-flopped in time and, and everything? I, it makes a lot of sense knowing that because I felt like a lot of the scenes, like I'm sure there was a script, but it didn't really feel that scripted. I, it, you know, a lot of it, you know, I felt like there were experiential scenes. It wasn't like we have to get this point in the story to make sure that this eventful thing happened because nothing really eventful happens more experiencing their relationship and their time together. So I feel like a lot of that could have been improved and the story was very, out of order i kind of it kind of jumped around they they broke up what twice and you start after the first breakup or the second breakup i'm not really sure and it kind of goes all over the place so i mean i don't mind the way it jumps around because again the fact that he's remembering it i feel like when you remember things you might not remember them in a sequential order so Mm -hmm. it makes a sense to me Uh, my 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 neighbor just texted me saying the neighborhood's on fire I don't, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to try to ignore that. I'm guessing it's not my house. I don't smell smoke. Well, <laughs> if uh, something bad happened, this might be the last time you ever heard from Keith. <laughs> Sorry, Pakistan. Um, yeah, that didn't that didn't bother me at all. I, my, my feeling is that a movie like this, if it were sequential, it might not have hit as as well as it as it did with audiences so all right bob so then so we go now we're we're done with his childhood and we go into the relationship with annie hall um the character whose name is in the title even though the title was originally several other really bad things it was called anxiety at one point and then it was called something really weird like anhedonia which is like some sort of psychological term and then they were like okay what do you like no man you can't <laughs> you can't name it this so we get to the annie hall relationship is this where the movie loses you is this where woody starts to complain too much yeah i just i felt like the whole time i wasn't ever interested in the characters or what was happening to them and it was just difficult for me to to want to pay attention to them it's like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to turn this into the, why do you hate this movie, Bob? No, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's just funny yeah, that like, just... You, you didn't like the movie because he complained, but in order to get the point across, you have to complain about his complaint. Yeah, it turns me into exactly what I don't like. It's, it's interesting. But for me, I guess other people are different. Like, I really need to like the characters to like the movie yeah i mean i i can i can see i can see that there are some well there are some actors that i i really can't stand watching to the point where i wouldn't really see a movie with them it would be a lot to see a movie with them in it because they they're just their being or their persona really just annoys me a lot like jim carrey would be one of those people um (laughs) i can't see a jim carrey movie you can't see Ace Ventura Pet Detective? No. Yeah, so, no, I mean, I think that some of the things that he complains about, like, especially when we're now at the beginning of the movie in the movie line and that guy is, like, talking about filmmakers and whatever, like, I feel like I, that's probably a situation that I would find myself in, even though who stands in movie lines anymore? Unless you're in New York City, you're not going to stand in line, like, in a multiplex. And you're not going to be in front of somebody who's talking critically about, you know, Fellini or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that but that I, scene, I did, I did enjoy how he was talking about Marshall McLuhan, right? And then 
he's like oh i got marshall right here i have him right here behind this poster (laughs) and then he's like you're a moron (laughs) you (laughs) You don't have this right at all (laughs) i guess um, i guess this movie was inspired by eight and a half which is a Federico fellini movie and they originally wanted fellini to do that cameo but fellini said no so okay or he said no great fellini impression if i do say (laughs) so And then that song about Mary setting the house on fire came on, because that's Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's time now to pick our year for next week, our decade at least. Um, So far, uh, four straight weeks of four different decades. 80s, 80s, 80s. Next week, the podcast goes to the 1980s. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Does that mean we have to have Keith back on? I guess so. You're just hoarding you say, the show. You say have to. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so we'll go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll come right back with more about 1977's Annie Hall. You better play some dope-ass 80s music during this break, Matt. Welcome back, everyone, to this show. You're terrible. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? Same thing you say every single week would be great. <laughs> what do I normally say? Welcome back to the show, everybody. We're here talking about 1977's Annie Hall. I'm Matt, joined by Bob and our special guest, Keith Brown. Although if he shows up a couple more weeks in a row, he might not be a special guest anymore. He might just be our third host at least until the semester kicks back I'm, in in the fall i'm hoping that i get a large vibrating egg in the mail for participating in this podcast <laughs> you want a sex ed a sex egg <laughs> a sex, sex ed, ed. <laughs> i'm just um, trying to bring it back to the movie matt okay <laughs> okay i thought we were talking about stormy daniels again i'm gonna go on amazon.com right now and google vibrating egg and i'm gonna send both of you one. Ooh, cadbury makes one <laughs> just for easter Jesus has risen, and so will you with the new vibrating egg. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not going to Google this anymore. <laughs> uh, we'll so go ahead and Keith... share you Keith's results in our show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we jump back in, I'm curious, because I know Keith's been super busy fixing up his, his uh, rental homes, but in the meantime, what have you been watching? Uh, I've been watching my my other guilty show pleasure. It's Younger on TV Land. TV Land? Is that Land? a Woody Allen fantasy series? That is. Do you know what that is? 
That's the show. That's the show about the forty-two-year-old girl who pretends to be twenty-something to get a job, and she falls in love with this younger guy. But her boss, who's older, is also in love with her. It's amazing. And this is on TV Land. So TV this, Land makes original. Is this content real out? or scripted? Mm-hmm. This is reality. Scripted. Oh, scripted. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. This seems like something could happen easily. It's good. <laughs> There's some really good characters in there. I didn't know Debbie that TV Mazar Land was still funny. around. I remember, like, I used to watch, like, what, Mr. Ed and I Dream of Genie on TV Lands. Well, didn't it used to just be at night on Nickelodeon, right? Didn't it used to be, like, it wasn't its own channel. They, it would just turn, Nickelodeon would turn into TV Land at night, I think. Oh, yeah. But then I think it was its own channel, but it was only where old shows stuff. went to die. Basically. Yeah, it only No, where they crap. already yeah. died. Yeah. 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 yeah, this is like the resurrected, like the. But then they Lucy's. then they had uh, that uh, hot in Cleveland was one of their shows, right, with Betty White. And then they did a Jim Gaffigan series too, which seems okay. out of place. It's like, All right, this is produced by Darren Starr, who did like be- produced Beverly Hills, Nine Hundred Two One Zero, and Melrose Place and stuff. It's good. Sex in the okay. City. Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Shout out to Dan Larsh. He lives in the Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Was he on that show? <laughs> no. But I think somehow... I remember seeing him at the prom. Oh, wait, that was in the Tuffle Over remake. <laughs> oh, that's right. And By the way, I the still haven't one. seen anything from the 80s birthday party movie. What so happens? going back to uh, Annie Hall. <laughs> so to fill everyone in who doesn't know what we're talking about. So Bob has his cabinet in the woods. Keith has his big movie it's tough all over this is the movie that you made when you were in college were you at boston college bu i'm sorry bu boston that's university okay. that's okay. i hear they make a, a really good grilled cheese there seriously i i visited a friend there once and we ate grilled cheese and it was dope at a at a restaurant it was at it was at like the dining one of the dining halls oh something. okay they gotcha. had like a grilled cheese with a burger on it oh it was really good interesting so one of keith's assignments for his students is they have to recut the prom scene from his movie tough all over and so but there is a sequel to tough all over that is not released and keith needs to finish it and release it but he claims it's not a sequel but it is it's not it is that's okay starring like half our class (laughs) i know oh bob's in it no i'm not there's no way am i in it all right you're not no maybe you're not i don't ryan gilman is in it well, this is this is getting too uh, this is getting too uh, personal. Specific. Insider, yeah. Speaking well, of the insider, <laughs> is that a prom? Wait, that's a prom scene. It's not a. It's it's just a dance. It's a school dance, right? They're not old yeah. enough. They're not in high school. They're in like They're middle not, school. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, wait, my whole life has been a lie. Well, speaking of sequels, I saw Ocean's Eight yesterday. Okay. Ooh. It was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big Kate Blanchett fan. She's like royalty, Hollywood royalty, in my opinion. She can do no wrong. I really love her too, but I watched a film that I did not like at all with her in it at Nashville Film Festival. It was she was the only like character in it. She played like 13 characters. Ooh, uh, that sounds like my kind of movie. Yeah, it was it was it was strange. I don't know. I didn't like it, but everyone else in the theater did, and they. Didn't like me growling and scoffing at the movie the entire time, but otherwise, love Kate Blanchett. Hella, she's a great Hella. Manifesto mm. was the movie. Manifesto, yeah, that was it. Yeah, I saw it at Nashville Film Festival. Packed theater. She plays thirteen roles. Wow, that's impressive. Didn't she do that in? Um... Oh no, you know what? I'm thinking of the movie where 
I'm Not Here. What was the one where everybody plays Bob Dylan and she was one of the Bob Dylan iterations? I'm Not There. Oh, I'm Not There. I'm sorry. So he is here. He's not there. He's here. Right. Right. Sorry. Kate Blanchett was also in a Woody Allen movie. Blue Jasmine earned her the Academy Award and also earned Woody his second Academy Award for writing and his third overall, I believe, because he won two awards at the 1978 ceremony. And he wasn't even there. And he was not even there. He does not go to these. Uh, Does he? He never goes. No, I don't think he's ever been. He's kind of like one of those like awards don't matter people. Kind of like Bob Dylan, who didn't want to accept the, the Nobel. Well, Nobel Prize, you get money. You get like a bunch of money. So, You know what's, inter- you know what's interesting, though, is that this movie, a-, a bunch of it takes place in Coney Island, right? And so his latest movie, Wonder Wheel, was shot in Coney Island, or it takes place in Coney Island. But Coney Island Yeah, I have a bunch changed- of friends that were... Uh, extras that, in that one. That new seriously? One. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't like that. I was really excited to see that movie, and I didn't like it at all. Oh, I didn't. I didn't see it, but they said it. It was tough because as extras, uh, they had to stack them, where they put on different, like they like mix around, and then they use like four images of the same groups of people mixed around to like make a crowd. <laughs> Interesting. And they got sunburned. Yeah, well, I mean, outside. a lot of that movie was created digitally because Coney Island doesn't exist the way it used to. Now, I mean, it even exists less as it did in 1976, right? So they had to really make make it up digitally, which, you know, in 76, they were shooting with things that were sort of still there to make them look older. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean... That's too bad. Yeah, I guess so. It's it's kind of cool though going there because what is left is still very dated. Like they didn't really keep up with it at all. So what is there is still just like it was. <laughs> just well, that prettier. big that big thing that looks like that. Do you know what I'm talking about, Bob? The, the listeners can't can't see. I know it looks like a big coat rack, and like that's not used for anything anymore, but those were like weird parachute rides. And so I think that in the new movie, there's like people, it, it looks like people are flying up and down it when now it's just like a, a sculpture. I'd never been to Coney Island until last year. Um, so it was sort of interesting to sort of see all these things after finally getting to go there. It's interesting that he's such a fascination with Coney Island having not grown up there when most of his movies are autobiographical, but I guess he just likes, must like the aesthetic. Well, also, like, around when he was growing up, that place was pretty, pretty sure. like, well, you know, like, it was it was the place to be. So that I'm sure any anyone who lived anywhere in Brooklyn went there a bunch in the summers. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So it's, it's still something special in, from his childhood that he that he holds on to. Well, he won, um, he won Best Writing... Uh, along with this guy, Marshall Brickman. And I'm curious, Keith, you've seen the documentary on him, right? When he pulls all the pieces of paper out of his nightstand. So what? refresh my memory. So he just has all these like ideas on... Yeah, I on... forget. I think they were, they're in his bedroom with him and they're asking about things. And he says, he says, oh, I just have a lot of ideas in this drawer. I just write them on scraps of paper. And he like pulls out this drawer of his nightstand. And he just has, oh, sorry. He just has tons of tons of stuff there um and he's i i I, now i want to go back and look at that now that you mention it and he just starts reading off sort of ideas 
that he has had. That's crazy. I mean, the fact that he's making a movie every year to me is sort of amazing, especially since I can't finish one short film in four years, but he's making a giant movie <laughs> every year. Is it, does it detract a little bit when it becomes sort of like a factory pumping out movies or does something like this still have an artistic merit, even if like his character is always the same and he's pumping out a romantic comedy every single year? I mean, Bob, what do you, what do you think about that? Does it take away from so, his legacy? No, I, I think it is his legacy. I think that's what kind of makes him, you know, I'm not a huge fan of him personally, but I, I have mad respect for someone who can just continually make movies. What does he make? Like one a year? He used to make like two a year, I feel like. He's made a lot of movies and they've gotten, you know, their praise and they're they're not that expensive and they seem to always, you know, make, you know, make their money back and then some. So, I have a lot of respect. I think the type of movies he makes makes it a little easier for him to achieve this. There but it's just it's still it doesn't take away from, you know, how incredible of an achievement it is to just make this many films and to want to make this many films. Yeah. So, speaking of um being able to pump out movies every year. This is the list of movies that he was nominated for. Blue Jasmine, Midnight in Paris, Matchpoint, Deconstructing Harry, Mighty Aphrodite, Bullets Over Broadway, Husbands and Wives, Alice, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Radio Days, Hannah and Her Sisters, Purple Rose of Cairo, Broadway Danny Rose, Manhattan, Interiors, and then this one, Annie Hall, which I believe was his fifth. Those so are these were ones- all director nominations? They were all writing, with the exception of Bullets Over Broadway, he was nominated for Best Director, and Crimes and Misdemeanor, he was nominated for Best Director. Okay. Oh, God. And Broadway Danny Rose, Best Director, and Hannah and Her Sisters, Best Director. Yeah. But all the years that he was nominated for Best Director, he was also nominated for Best Writing, which is pretty incredible. I mean, those are just the Academy Awards. So, I mean, and his body of work spans 50 years, so that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and and this one especially did very well at the 1978 Academy Awards. It won Best Picture, Actress, Screenplay, and Director. It's a good haul. Yeah. It's a good Annie haul. (laughs) I see what you did there, Matt. I see what you did there. But yeah, it's, you know, the essential ones. You know, writing, directing, acting. And he was nominated for Best Actor himself as well. Didn't win that one. A good year for him to not show up to the awards. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> especially because i don't think he was exactly satisfied with this movie i think that a, a part of him was was hoping that there would be more but they had to cut a lot out in fact didn't I, I read somewhere that the original plot of this involved the murder mystery that became manhattan murder mystery that's interesting because that i really and i'd like to go back and rewatch that because that really is a movie that i liked a lot is that your favorite Woody Allen movie? I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of good ones in there. Um, I was just looking up what the newest one's called, A Rainy Day in New York, um, that has already shot. Um, I know people that have been in that one, too. Seriously? <laughs> just extras, but yeah. <laughs> Dude, you need to get me as an extra in there. I'll just come. I'll come stay with you and go uh, duplicate myself. You might be able to get a leading role in his next one. I heard that he's having trouble casting. Oh jeez. Although maybe that was rainy days in New York that he was that they were talking about. Well, a lot of people I'm looking it up right now. A lot of people uh, is said they won't never work with him again. So let's 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 like dive into that just a tiny bit. Like we don't need to harp on it because we're discussing Andy Hall. We're discussing the movie, 
on its you know in its own right. But what what are your thoughts on Woody Allen as the the person as far as and does his personal uh, what's the word life I guess I don't I don't want to does it detract again from watching his movies or no? For me, it, it does. It was tough watching the scene. It does. It was tough watching the scene where they're talking about the, when the little boy and little girl kiss, and he's commenting on his his sexual drive as as a uh, elementary school te- uh, student. Well, then, and Max's character too, right? When he gets to L.A. and he calls him, he basically says that he was having sex with two underage girls. <laughs> oh yeah, sixteen year olds. Which was weird, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess it's trying. To, and but again, you know. And this is something that's uh, come up in our discussions in in my class. Uh, They watched Rebel Without a Cause last week. And I I just keep reminding them that to look at something with a lens of 2018, where attitudes against towards women and minorities were all very different. It's very hard to judge it with obviously today. And it it wasn't really appropriate in the first place, but that's how everybody thought. So it's hard to judge the characters in a way that everybody was thinking, not whether it's right or wrong. You know what I mean? Because, you know, excuse me, if you uh, like watch, it used to be DVDs of like the old, uh, cartoons, is it Looney Tunes or whatever? A lot of times there's like a disclaimer at the top that says, this depicts attitudes of the day. We in no way, shape or form stand behind these attitudes now, but we're showing this as it was. Right, because they were really you know? racist. Yeah. 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 So that's how I felt most of the movie is just like knowing what I know about him now that I might not have known watching this in the 70s. It, it, it was it was cringeworthy for me all this like weird sex talk and him talking about women and just all these scenes i just really it really grossed me out and then him like kissing that girl in the in the beginning the the kid version of him and then he pops up in that very chair and he's in a classroom with a bunch of little children it was a little much for me and then that one girl stands up and she's like i'm into leather and i was like that's funny now or funny like it's funny but it's also like uh yeah so i have mixed feelings about it for a number of reasons so he's married to someone who when they were dating she was what 19 i think and currently in real life yeah 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 in real life and and he was he was her adopted stepfather so there's that weird thing but then like a part of me has to step back and you know that is separate from the allegations with Dylan Farrow, who was seven years old when supposedly he molested her. And, like, people kind of tend to think, like, that those two things are the same, as if, like, someone who likes younger girls is a child molester who molests a seven-year-old, and they're not. They're completely different things. So for me, like, watching this and watching and, like, talking the last time you were on about, like, Every movie seems to be about an older guy dating a younger girl. Like, I can see that through his... Like, that's obviously about him. But that's that's not, like, rapey to me. <laughs> so, like, I, I can see it as being a little bit weird and different, but it doesn't necessarily scream, like, this isn't appropriate. I don't know. I guess that's just... And I'm not but defending... Being- being someone's stepfather and then marrying them is much worse than an old guy marrying a young girl. Like it, it, it takes it, it takes it to another level. Yeah. Me. It's yeah. 
is you know it's a position of power like it's just you know very strange to me that's fair that's fair but also like is that that's separate from these allegations which were which are only allegations so the tough part about that is whether whether they're true or not it fits his persona so well like it makes sense you know like whether it's true or not it's it for most people i bet it's easy for them to believe this over someone else have receiving allegations like this just for what we do know about him it makes it a lot easier to say hey i don't know if these are just allegations and they're not true like hey i know you know i know who this guy is and this this could have happened so i i but for me that his marriage was en- is enough for me like i don't you know regardless of the allegations <laughs> i don't know <laughs> Yeah, I guess for me, there's a difference between being into 19-year-olds and being into 9-year-olds. But, but I, I, you know, like, it's a different planet yeah. as far there's as also, I'm concerned. There's also another thing. is like, I don't really, I don't like to use the personality of someone to dislike their work. But when he's, like, the main character in his movies, it makes it really tough for me. <laughs> like, if it was his movie and someone else is in it. Like, I don't care. I don't really care about, you know, what he's done or who that person is. Like, I'm just trying to appreciate the movie for the movie. But when it's he's playing himself in his movie, <laughs> it's a little it's that much more difficult for me. <laughs> well, have you ever seen Manhattan, Bob? No. I mean, so I've been he, to in Manhattan. That movie, well, he's 42 and he falls in love with a 17 year old. Interesting. Yeah, it's a really good film. But again, when I watched it. The first time I was like, well, that's interesting, right? Because that was made in uh, 1979. And even by the time I had watched it, like all that stuff was sort of happening. Um, And I was like, well, that's sort of bizarre that this all came from the same place, you know? So what we've talked about, we haven't gotten that far into the film if we're going sequentially, which we don't have to, but... We have that moment where we see them towards the end of their relationship. I think when they when they break up and then it jumps back all the way to the beginning when they first meet on the tennis court. So the difference between Annie Hall, the most recent one and her in the very beginning, I felt was completely drastic. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but she was so sophisticated and, you know, her own person and like a strong presence. And then in the beginning, she's just a complete airhead and like a mess and just like complete mess. So I was interested to hear what you guys think about, you know, her character changing so drastically. Yeah, I totally, I completely noticed that she couldn't even keep a train of thought. She was trying to tell a story. He, he froze in a weird way. Yeah. He has this weird face. I was going to take a... Are you there? Oh, he's back. Yeah. That was a good freeze frame, though. You saw the same thing oh, I did, I, should I guess. Take, I should have taken a picture of that. Yeah, I totally... I'll just start over. <laughs> yeah, I totally noticed that. Um, she couldn't even keep a train of thought. She's trying to tell a story. She couldn't get through the story. She's, like, frantically looking for her wine. Her apartment's a mess. And then fa- flash forward, and she's very st- almost stoic, serious, can, you know, stands up for herself... But she even says at the end that that's a product of their relationship, that it taught her how to stand up for herself. So it worked, but it was really drastic to the point where it almost seemed like two different characters. Is that how you felt? It did because you go from 
you go from the end to the beginning of her span as a character and it was so drastic that it took me a long time to get used to the new one or the young one where she's so dumb when i liked the character that broke up with him as the sophisticated you know strong spoken woman and then you go back and she's just a complete airhead and they meet at the tennis club at the, playing this tennis match and she was just so instantly like obsessed with him which seemed very weird to me like i i figured like a character it's not like channing tatum where it's like oh damn i'm loved instantly <laughs> i feel like if anyone's if anyone's into a character like woody allen's character in this film uh they fall in love with his his charm the way he says things which is something that to me takes time like you have to experience this person and hear them talk a lot and stuff like that not like a love at first sight thing yeah well first of all i think we just cast the reboot channing tatum as alvy singer and stormy daniels uh as uh diane keaton for diane keaton's character um (laughs) well you know the other thing that you guys didn't mention in, in any of this talk is that you know she does start analysis she starts like psychotherapy in the middle of this relationship right so does does that have a change in in her sort of assertiveness? I mean, you know, she does still have a lot of hangups. Like she can only sleep with him when she's like smoked marijuana. Uh, you know, and is it is it a lot? Is it the therapy that is helping her change as an individual, and that's why they sort of grow apart? Because I don't think he changes at all, and he's been going to therapy. It seems like forever. Yeah, and that's an interesting that's an interesting theme throughout the film as well as they're both going to therapy and they have that one scene that I that I liked where they're both in therapy ask the same questions, give the same answers, but and they you know they shot yeah. I was reading today that they shot that actually with a wall in between the people and not it's not split screen. That's an expensive way of getting the same shot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess if, you know, if all you care about are getting the right performances like that, you know, that really hits it home. Yeah, what's funny about the, the, the therapy is that he's paying for the therapy and it's changing her and, and helping her to realize that she should not be in a relationship with him. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting even at the end where he, he makes a – like he's not really bitter like he knows this was a good thing for him, but at the end it was like, well, I'm realizing how much fun it was just even knowing her. So just the fact that he was like able to hang around her for that brief amount of time seems like to him that that improved his life some. Yeah. Did that seem uncharacteristic to you? To, to of him? Have, yes. Because he complains about everything? Because he's like into death and he's so negative. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I like... I really like, I like the ending. I like how it's all put together. I like how it's filmed outside through that window. And then they sort of part ways and you just hang there for a bit without either of them there. Yeah. So it keeps talking about the actual last shot of the movie. Sorry, I just jumped all the way to the end. That's okay. I know we said we're going to go in order. No, we're not. I I just want to make sure we hit all the beats of the movie. I don't care what, (laughs) when we talk about them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last shot is they, they sort of physically part ways, walk different ways on the street. And then we just hold on the, the street through a window across, across the, the road, looking at where they were standing. And then it, and then he gives his final narration and it fades. Um, my favorite scene is the most popular scene, which is the lobster scene. 
where they're chasing which, the lobsters Which lobster around. scene? There's two. <laughs> There's, there is two. The, the famous lobster scene where they're chasing lobsters around. So, so much has been written about this lobster scene. And when I first saw this movie, I just thought it was a funny scene. But people have analyzed this for years, talking about how it's a microcosm of their relationship and the movie. And, and so what, what, what did you guys make of, of the lobster scene? Or was it just about lobsters for you? <laughs> It reminded me of the movie The Lobster. No, it really didn't. But <laughs> it's a cute, candid moment. You know, people just being themselves. You don't see it often in movies. So again, I've seen this movie a bunch of times. I think that it was really interesting to me because the first thing I thought of when it came on this time is uh, you're gonna you're gonna think I'm crazy here, but um his refrigerator and his stove are so close together that it's almost like you could never open the stove and hit the refrigerator, which that was bothering me during this time. <laughs> um, and I know that has nothing to do with the scene itself, but just that was like so weird. Yeah. So what, what are some of the things that you were reading, Matt? Do you have them in front of you? Sure. Um, so I, I read, there's one article where it, talk, it talks about how um, the, the, the lobsters represent the uh, the characters like Woody Allen's character is the lobster who hides behind the refrigerator, hmm. and <laughs> it's a representation of their characters because of the way in which they handle the situation. Where she is brave enough to go right in and pick up the lobster, but he needs to sort of be coerced into picking up the lobster, and he's tentative and frightened. But then he eventually does it, but only for a second, and he's making his his wise cracks. And that this is supposed to be so supposed to be a representation of their relationship, huh. in some way. Well, I mean, she also calls him after they've broken up to kill the bug, right? So <laughs> in a way, true. it's sort of the same type of thing. Like he doesn't—he's afraid of the bug, just as he's afraid of the lobster. <laughs> anyway, narrow down our '80s decade to an '80s year. And we're going to, after we pick that year, we're going to have Keith guess what the movies were that year. Oh, God. Because <laughs> he's so 80s. Are you more familiar with the beginning 80s or late 80s? I, I'm more familiar with the music of the 80s than the movies of the ah, 80s, but we'll try. Okay. We, okay. we shall try. Well, how does 1989 sound? I really have no idea. Like, I can't even picture what 1989 is. Well, can you tell me one of the movies and I can see if I can guess the rest of them? Sure, it is quite the list. Um, how about I'll give you the winner of that year, Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, how about I will give you an actor who is in the movie. Okay, this one is Tom Cruise and uh, Kyra Sedgwick. Uh, born on the Fourth of July. Very good. Okay. Keep it going. Let's see if you go two for two. This one was written by Tom Schulman and stars Robin Williams. Dead Poet Society. All right. That's two for two. This one is a, an American fantasy drama starring Kevin Costner. Dances with Wolves? No, that's an <laughs> American fantasy. Uh, Kevin Costner. Fantasy drama? I have no idea. Field of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have gotten that. Uh, okay, the last one of that year is a biographical drama film co-written and directed by Jim Sheridan starring Daniel Day-Lewis. My Left Foot? My Left Foot. Very good. So that's not bad. I would have gotten none of those. <laughs> props, props to Keith. <laughs> so I haven't, seen, I haven't seen Field of Dreams. 
Okay. And I haven't seen Left Foot. Okay. I haven't but seen the, Left Foot either. But the other movies I think I've seen. Well, it's funny you say Dancing with Wolves or Dances with Wolves because that was the Did 19- I say Dancing with Wolves? No, you might. I don't know. Oh, okay. I said That'd be funny so if I said Dancing with Wolves. <laughs> Uh, no, it's funny you say Dances with Wolves because that was the 1990 Best Picture winner. Okay. And Kevin Costner actually won that Oscar as a producer on that movie. Okay. So I never anyway, saw it either. So when we come back, we'll finish up talking about Annie Hall and pick our movie for next week's episode of The Podcast Goes To. It had to be you. It had to be you. I wandered around and I finally found this somebody who could make me be true. Wrapping things up here on the podcast goes to Annie Hall, 1977. I'm Matt with Bob and our guest, Keith Brown, who is very excited about next week's movie, something from 1989. But before we get to that, um, any final thoughts on this movie, you guys? What about some of the cameos? There seemed to be a lot of cameos in this. Yeah, so Bob, you were saying you didn't you didn't see Sigourney Weaver. Did you see her, Matt? No, I so Sigourney Weaver isn't. I saw Jeff Goldblum. That was like the big one for yeah, me. Yeah, but that couldn't so, have been a cameo at the time. Jeff Goldblum wasn't no, he? They, like they, these were just these were just people that were cast in this movie. Like even I was watching this with somebody else, and she was like, "Oh my god, look at that person!" But it's like they were just in the movie, and then they became famous uh, a while afterwards. You know, um, that's crazy. So Sigourney Weaver, the scene at the very end where Woody Allen runs into Annie outside the sorrow and the pity with her new date um, was just reduced to one wide shot. And his date in that wide shot is Sigourney Weaver. Um, So it was her first film role ever. And I guess that scene was cut down to just that one shot. Yeah. Crazy, right? What about the Truman Capote lookalike? Did you know who played him? No, I don't know that. Truman Capote. Seriously? Yes, it is actually Truman Capote. That's <laughs> playing crazy. Truman Capote looked like. Yeah. That was the only other one that I caught. Christopher Walken, weird. He was actually on, he's on the poster, like his name is, and he's only in that one scene. Yeah. And then on the TV show that they go and Max, they're in the editing room or whatever, Beverly D'Angelo is playing a character on that TV show. You know her from the mom in vaca- the vacation movies. Okay, sure. And then obviously Jeff Goldblum we talked about. Yeah, that weird mm-hmm. scene where he's at the party and he just like says this weird line. <laughs> he lost his mantra. <laughs> it was so bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, Christopher Christopher Walken was an interesting character though. He played uh Annie Hall's brother, right? Yeah, and then what does he say to Alvy at some point? He comes in, he says he shows him his room and then he says something else that's really weird and So he goes on this he goes on this rant about he's like, Is it weird that when I drive, I just want to plow my car oh, into the oncoming yeah, traffic. Yeah, yeah. And then the very yeah, next yeah, yeah. scene, he's driving both of them to the airport. And Woody Allen's right. character, Alvy, is freaking out in right. the car because he just went on this whole rant about having wanting to drive into oncoming traffic. And now he's driving him. <laughs> a lot of a lot of car 
hysteria in this movie. Just anytime car anyone's anxiety. in a car. Yeah, there's a lot of car anxiety. Like, I don't know if in real life he doesn't drive, but in this movie he doesn't drive except for one scene, and he is horrible at it. He keeps stopping short, and it's a mess. And then uh, Annie Hall drives him on their first date, I guess you can call it, when they when they play tennis. She drives him, and then he's like, you're the worst driver ever. <laughs> So I don't know if that has something to do with his nature, Woody Allen's nature about him not liking cars or driving, but is very prevalent in this movie. Uh, I like that it flashes back to the bumper cars. It's an interesting flashback, but I feel like a lot of the things that happened in his childhood would make him the opposite of how he is. So he grew up driving bumper cars all the time because that's what his dad did for a living. And you drive. So you think he'd be a great driver and then they live in the house with the roller coaster and everything shaking all the time. So you think instead of making him nervous about everything, it would make him impervious used to, it. to that. Yeah. 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 So it was, it was very interesting that a lot of, a lot of things in his, in his upbringing and his life made him the opposite result of what I would have expected. If I went through those things, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great point, Bob. I never looked at it that way. Cause yeah, I, what I was thinking, I was thinking was, Oh, I'm, I'm, it, I'm interested to watch it again and think about the elements of those childhood flashbacks and how they relate to his adulthood. But it's, it's interesting to hear you say that you picked up on them being contrary to the adulthood. That's, that's a good, it's a good thought. I'm proud of you. I wanted, I I only wanted to watch this movie once in my life. So I made sure I got all of it, (laughs) all of it as I watched it. Was this your first time watching it? Yeah, this is my first time watching this film. Interesting. Okay. I went on a huge Woody Allen kick when I moved to New York. I mean, I think I went through like 20 or 20 or 30 Woody Allen movies while I was that first summer I was in New York City. Oh, really? Yeah. Funny, funny how uh, we never seem to uh, hang out with each other when you lived so close to me. Oh, those were the dark years of our No, I actually, I think, I think you moved to New York and I was in Rhode Island still. Mm. Um, I just... I graduated college and I just stayed in Wakefield for a while because I didn't want to go anywhere. And then I think when I came back, you went somewhere else. I think we just missed each other. Oh, sad. Like Benjamin Button, we never quite met in the middle. That's because Matt was sitting at a restaurant in Lincoln Center just giving dialogue narrations, uh, sitting at a table by himself while people walked around on the street outside. You should you should end the podcast that way. You should you should take the song and then dub over your voice saying the same lines that Woody does at the end of the film. Oh, wow. I, I definitely like don't understand that reference, but it's very interesting. It brings up an interesting <laughs> point, though. Now that I think about it, we've been Bob didn't finish the movie. <laughs> now, that, now that I think. No, I meant what you were doing, Matt. But anyway, uh, we've been doing this podcast for for a bunch of weeks now. We tried to write a script together what i i can't even remember the last time i saw you in person <laughs> it had to be forever ago <laughs> have I, we ever met i somehow keep, see keith all the time but i saw him at a rick astley concert i don't know how that happened but <laughs> <laughs> that was random <laughs> what? places that you don't a... think you're gonna run into bob i mean <laughs> It was more likely that I should have been there than you. I know you're a big 80s guy, but it was in New York City. And you live in Rhode Island, Keith. <laughs> yeah, so. but I'm... Yeah, okay. <laughs> they actually... They closed that place, Webster Hall. It's... It's no... doesn't exist anymore. 
It was funny though, the now we're getting way off topic. The act that was premiering at Webster Hall the very next week. It was a Friday show. Do you know what that act was? Do you remember what they were advertising? So it was Martin Shkreli, the guy who just recently went to jail, the guy who raised the pharmaceutical prices on like a a life-saving pill by like a shit ton oh of money. God. Remember that guy? What? Yeah. Yeah, why is he? So he, he, at one point in his life, bought a Wu-Tang album that he owns and no one else has heard the music. And the act mm-hmm. following Rick Astley the next week was Martin Screlly playing his Wu-Tang album. So it's him at a DJ booth playing his personal oh album music that he owns. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I really wanted to go to that, but I had a shoot that week. <laughs> Just to go and throw some tomatoes at that guy. I actually think that there is a lawsuit to try and get the album back from Martin. Well, he's in jail now. I, I watched the video where he started crying when they arrested him. That was pretty yeah. awesome. It's a real shame. Real shame. <laughs> you hate to see good things. You hate to see bad things happen. Taking a, a like life-saving that. pill that people need from like a dollar a pill to like a million dollars a pill or whatever it was. Yeah, and stealing the Wu-Tang album. Like, <laughs> I mean, he didn't steal it. He bid for it. He spent like $2 million on it and then just wouldn't give it to anybody. And now Wu-Tang is like, okay, we want the album back because he's poor because he had to pay all this money and go to jail. <laughs> But, like, how good could that album been if they didn't want to release it? Like, <laughs> that's what that's I wonder. True. I mean, all of Wu-Tang is just amazing, but still. That's true. <laughs> still. Well, anyway, enough about Wu-Tang. Let's get down to business. <laughs> it is 1989, and we have five movies with which uh, to choose from. And we're going to narrow it down now to just one, which we will watch next week and discuss. Uh, as a refresher, the nominees are Driving Miss Daisy, Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. So, which is very itchy right now. <laughs> Still. So I was really hoping when you said dead that you'd say Deadpool, but I knew that those movies didn't come out in the '80s and were not nominated <laughs> for Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah, no. One of these days we'll get a superhero movie. One of these days. So it is, oh, Keith, I'm very sorry. It is Field of Dreams. (laughs) (laughs) The Kevin Costner fantasy drama sports film. (laughs) Sounds Uh, super interesting. Are you still going to join us next week? If you want me to, I will. Oh, you're talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) I can opt out. Have you seen this movie, Bob? No, no, I haven't. Okay, cool. So this will be a good one. Uh, it also stars James Earl Jones, Amy Madigan, Ray Liotta, and Burt Lancaster in his final role. You had me at James Earl Jones. Oh, man, <laughs> I love James Earl Jones. Hell yeah. So we'll discuss that on next week's show. Until then, I'm Matt, and thank you for joining us. You guys want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Goodbye. So long. bye see you next time on another episode of the podcast goes to interestingly however i did run into annie again was on the upper west side of manhattan she had moved back to new york she was living in soho with some guy and when i met her she was of all things dragging him in to see the sorrow and the pity which i counted as a personal triumph and annie and i we had lunch sometime after that and uh just uh kicked around old times just to have my